Who knows where First Chronicles is? It's in the Old Testament somewhere. Go find it. First Chronicles chapter 17. We won't be there for a while, but I'll, of course, most of you are just scrolling down a device or something looking for it, right? So it's probably just as easy to find. Back, you know, when I was a kid, we used to go to, in the Iwana clubs, we used to have sword drills. You ever have those? You had to hold your Bible up in the air, and then and the person would say the, the scripture reference, and you'd have to come down, and whoever got there first would win. What do you do with phones? You know, Siri drill, you know. <laughs> I don't know what you'd call it. In our series on the kingdom of God, we have uh, been, we're going to take a few weeks to do something a little different and, and to look at what I am calling kingdom perspectives. Kingdom perspectives. And, and, and what I mean is we're just going to look at some sort of big picture ideas that can help us to understand what the kingdom of God really is and how we can advance it through our lives. Last week we began doing this, and you might remember we looked at the kingdom from the angle of whether it is a visible kingdom or an invisible kingdom in this day and age right now since Jesus' resurrection but before his return. And you might remember we had a lot of talk of, uh, of, of skinny jeans and pleated pants. Remember that? Yeah, if you missed that, you can watch the, you can watch the stream or you can, you can listen to the podcast. I, I, at least one of the youth did not know what pleated pants were, and so I heard from his mom that he was Googling it during the, sur- during the sur- um, service. So um, I went ahead and wore some today. Um, I, don't, I, think, I think they're pretty much on the way out, you know, so they're, they're not in style anymore, but I'm not exactly a fashion plate, so I have some pleated pants still. So if you need to know what they look like, Silas, here they are. All right. <laughs> and all your friends online now know that you also don't know what pleated pants are. <laughs> uh, we're going to come back to those ideas. Um, in studying the kingdom, we're, we're, we're kind of putting together a puzzle one piece at a time, and today I want to look at one particular piece, and I want to introduce a, an idea that is really related to last week, but for this one, we're going to have to go back to the Old Testament. It is really impossible to do justice to the idea of the kingdom of God without anchoring that idea in the Old Testament, because the kingdom of God is not just a New Testament idea, even though Jesus talks about it a lot in Matthew. And so I'm going to do a little bit of a, of a survey for you today of just part of the Old Testament and a couple of the themes that are running through Old Testament history. Uh, and as I do that, um, we're going to talk about a kingdom and a temple. A kingdom and a temple. And, and because of, of the nature of it, it might seem kind of like a Sunday school lesson instead of a sermon for the first 15 minutes or so as we go through and kind of review some of these Old Testament things. But I promise you that when we put things together at the end today, we're going to find a very powerful application in this, uh, really for each of our lives and for our church too. If you look at the ministry of Jesus on earth, it, it can really be bookended by, by two different passages, uh, two different things that were said. Uh, the first passage is in Matthew 4.17, when Jesus comes on the scene and he begins his public ministry and he does it with these words, repent, reorient your life, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Those were Jesus' first real public, that was his first public declaration when he started to preach. The other bookend at the end of Jesus' ministry on earth is found in Acts 1-6, the Acts Chapter 1, verse 6, the disciples asked Jesus a question. And here's the question. They say, are you at, this is after Jesus' resurrection. And they say to him, are you at this time 
going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Now, with regard to last week's message, when the disciples asked that question, Jesus, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel, do you think they were talking about a visible kingdom or an invisible kingdom? Very visible, right? Obviously very visible. They had a certain vision of what God's kingdom was going to look like when established on earth. And it was the same vision that every Israelite would have in mind when they heard Jesus start to talk about the kingdom back in Matthew chapter 4 at the beginning of his ministry. Don't, don't forget, they said, are you going to restore the kingdom? So there was something they had in mind that had kind of been there before that they wanted to see again. If you asked any first century Israelite, what the kingdom of God was, he would say without hesitation, it's us. It's the nation of Israel. It's this country. We are God's kingdom people, and this is God's kingdom place. This slab of land here, right on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea, this is God's kingdom place, and we're God's kingdom people. And you know what? That's a good answer, because it has deep roots all through the Old Testament. And if you ask them, what should the kingdom of God be like? What does the kingdom of God look like when it's really operating on all cylinders? What's the ideal kingdom of God look like? They all would have mentioned probably two names, David and Solomon. King David and King Solomon, especially King David, who was regarded by every Israelite as the best king Israel had ever had. In fact, you know, we've talked about how Israel was waiting for the Messiah, this, this Christ, this, this very special king to come and deliver them. What, what Israel was really looking for, what they thought it would look like, they were, they were hoping really for a return to the kingdom of David, led by a new and even better King David who was actually David's descendant. And, and this whole idea is anchored in, in a passage back in 1 Chronicles chapter 17 that I'm going to read to you now. 1 Chronicles 17, we're going to start right at the beginning of the passage and go all the way up to verse 15. David, at this point, uh, he's, his enemies have been kind of beaten down on every side. He's, he's established the kingdom securely in his grasp. He is living in a palace. He is uh, pretty stable at this point, and it's kind of the best time in David's life. And it says here in 17.1, Now when David lived in his house, David said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. And Nathan said to David, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, It is not you who will build me a house to dwell in. For I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up Israel to this day. But I have gone from tent to tent and from dwelling to dwelling in all places where I have moved with all Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall waste them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom 
He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is a very important passage of the Bible, and it's also found in 2 Samuel 7, and it's known as the Davidic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, God's solemn promise where he commits himself to establish the throne of David and his descendants forever in Israel. And by the way, this promise has never been revoked. It is still in force, even though today Israel does not have a king on a throne. And we'll talk about how that's possible later. But historically, if you look at the history of Israel in the Old Testament, this king idea had kind of its ups and downs over time. God had always planned right from the beginning. He knew Israel was going to have a king. He had planned for a king. In fact, if you go back to to Genesis chapter 48 and you see Jacob and his 12 sons, right before Jacob dies, he's speaking to his 12 sons one after the other. He goes right down to the line, right down the line. And when he gets to his fourth son, Judah, he says, the scepter will never depart from Judah. It's a prophecy, clearly referring to some kind of royal rule and saying the royal line of Israel, when it comes, will come through his son Judah. Later on in Deuteronomy, before Israel even goes into the promised land, God has Moses write down some, some regulations for how the future king of Israel will carry out his reign. So we knew a king was coming, but when Israel finally got a king, which was around 1,000 B.C. or so, it was not under the best of circumstances. Uh, what happened was God, when, when they got into the land, God actually set up the nation without a king, and he did that on purpose because the people were supposed to recognize God as their king. And so in the first several hundred years after Israel moved into their land, God sent them judges, military leaders. He sent them prophets, but not kings because, again, he was their king, or he was supposed to be. But this time of the judges didn't really work out all that well. If you've ever read Judges, you'll, you'll realize that very quickly. And the problem was not with God. The problem was with the people. The author of Judges says in two places that when there was no king in Israel, and so everybody just did what was right in their own eyes, which, as you can imagine, was a disaster. And their continuing disobedience resulted in all kinds of problems from other nations oppressing them and invading their territory to falling into to instances of just gross immorality and idolatry. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people do what God had predicted they would do hundreds of years before. They come up to the prophet Samuel, who's really the last judge of Israel, and they start, they start bugging him to give them a king. Not just a judge, not just a military leader, not just a prophet. We want a king. And they didn't necessarily want a king that would make them more likely to obey God. Here's how they put it. We want a king like the other nations around us have, someone to go out and fight our battles for us. Now Samuel did not like this. He knew it wasn't really a good thing. He knew their motivation was wrong. He knew this was not exactly a shining moment in the history of Israel. But, but he went to the Lord and God said to him, Samuel, listen to them and do what they tell you to do. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me as their king. So go ahead and give them their human king. And that first king was a a pretty impressive dude by the name of Saul. But Saul, after a really promising start, 
he slid downhill rather quickly into rebellion and jealousy and rage and ultimately even to witchcraft. But in the meantime, while all this was happening and while things were kind of breaking down, God says to Samuel, okay, Samuel, now I'm going to show you what my kind of king looks like. I want you to go and visit Jesse, your friend over in Bethlehem, and I want you to meet his sons, and I'm going to introduce you to the next king of Israel, who is a man who is going to have the same kind of heart that I have. And that person was King David. David eventually becomes king after Saul completely just self-destructs. And when God makes this promise to David in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, he's saying to him, I am never going to take the throne away from your descendants the way I took it away from King Saul. And during the time of David and his, his son Solomon, God greatly blessed the nation of Israel. And, and this is where you really see, if you look at the Old Testament and you wonder what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like, this is, this is it. This is the model of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. God's people are in their land, they're in Israel, and because of their obedience and because of the, the wise and godly leadership of their kings, God is blessing them greatly. They're becoming rich and successful. They're becoming militarily strong. Their territory is getting larger and larger. And don't forget, God did not put his nation out on the fringes of the world somewhere in the boonies where no one would ever see them. He put them in, in a strip of land that was right in the middle of everything. It was at the intersection of all sorts of great nations and kingdoms and civilizations. And, and this is how God's word and God's ways were supposed to reach the world in the Old Testament. Israel was supposed to say right in that spot, a city on a hill, and they were supposed to be a model for all the nations. And, and this started to happen. Before you knew it, in, in the reign of David and Solomon, everyone from Lebanon to Egypt to the Queen of Sheba, way down south, wants to have a part in what is going on in this amazing kingdom of Israel where the king's wisdom is unsurpassed and it says that gold and silver were as common as regular stones. However, in the long run, this system ended up failing too. Because the kings after David and Solomon failed to walk in God's ways, the people became more and more corrupt and idolatrous, and as the earthly kingdom of Israel became less and less godly, it became less and less powerful. And finally, in about 586 B.C., the, the last remaining part of God's earthly kingdom, the declining nation of Judah, which had been whittled down to really a sliver of what it once was, they were taken captive into Babylon, the Davidic king was removed from the throne and the royal city of Jerusalem was completely destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. So was that it? Was that the end of the dream? Was the kingdom of God on earth completely over? No, not at all. As Babylon eventually gave way to Persia when the Persians came in and took over the Babylonians and the people came out of their 70-year captivity and returned to their land, even though they were just a shell of their former glory. And no, there was not a king ruling on any throne in Israel, but there was still this promise. There was still 1 Chronicles 17. There was this promise that David's line of kings would go on forever. And the people knew that they really didn't know who it was, but they knew that there was a descendant of David and that God knew who the next king of Israel was going to be. And in fact, there was another promise. And it was a really kind of confusing promise because the prophet Ezekiel, who was a prophet right around the time that the people went into captivity, in chapter 34 of Ezekiel, you can see this promise. And, and what Ezekiel says is because of the failure 
God says this, because of the failure of the shepherds of Israel, meaning the kings, the, the, the political leaders, God says, I'm going to come down and I'm going to shepherd my flock myself. I am going to seek them out and I am going to find them. I'm going to search for my sheep. In other words, God would once again be king of Israel. But then in Ezekiel 34, 23, he says this, I will set up over them my servant David and he will feed them and be their shepherd. And so the nation of Israel is back in their land and things are not going that great. They're kind of a small third-rate power underneath another power, underneath another power. And, and they're looking forward to this prophecy being fulfilled and this kingdom coming back to Israel. But it's kind of confusing because it almost seems like, on one hand, God is going to take matters into his own hands and he's going to start ruling Israel himself. But then at the same time, he's apparently going to restore the throne to the human line of David and the person of some very special king whom he calls my servant David. Well, how can God rule Israel himself and yet rule through a human descendant of David at the same time? Or as Jesus teases the religious leaders in the temple courts a few days before he dies, he asks them, how can David call the Messiah Lord when the Messiah is supposed to be his descendant? I mean, it's not as if God can somehow become a human being and become part of David's line, right? That couldn't happen. Jesus says, think again, because that's exactly what happened. And now Jesus says, the kingdom is here, because the king is here among you. In fact, God is here among you. And the king has brought the kingdom. So the kingdom is at hand. All right, that's part one. Let's back up a few hundred years again, because we've left something out very important. Remember, I called this message a kingdom and a temple. And we've talked a lot about the kingdom, but we haven't said a thing about the temple. But if you go back to 1 Chronicles 17, what we're going to find, this whole kingdom promise is placed in, in the context of David wanting to build a house or a temple for the Lord. See, to this point, there was no permanent structure. There was no temple in Israel, just the same tabernacle, the tent, basically, that they had carried around with them in the wilderness when they were wandering. That was still God's home in the sense of being the place that people associated with God's presence. That's where the burnt offerings and the other sacrifices happen. It's where the priests minister before the Lord. But David wants to build God a more permanent place to dwell in. And through the prophet Nathan, God gives David this promise, which is really even better than what David had imagined. God says, look, David, you're not the one who's going to build me a house. Instead, I'm going to build you a house, the house of David which is a whole line of kings that will come from you and never fail to provide a ruler for my people. In fact, the one who will build a house for me is your son. And I will love him, and I will protect him, and I will not take my steadfast love from him even though he might fail me. But your son Solomon is the one who's going to build me this temple. And of course, that's what happened. And what a temple it was. It is hard to overestimate the importance of this magnificent building to the nation of Israel because the temple was not just the center of their religious life. It was the center of their civic life. It was the center of their social life. They came there for all the big holidays. All the big parties and celebrations were around the temple. And it was also, for that reason, it was a huge source of national pride. This was their temple, and it was beautiful. And this was true in Jesus' time, just as it was in Solomon's time, especially since King Herod 
Had, see, the temple wasn't very impressive. It had gotten destroyed by the Babylonians. They had built a new one, and it was kind of shabby looking, but King Herod had made some major renovations to the temple and brought back much of its former glory. It was a stunningly beautiful building in Jesus' time, and it was the symbol and the pride of God's people. And of course it was, to the extent that such a thing was possible, it was the place where God lived. It was the place where God lived. One of my Facebook friends uh, put a little thought question up on, online a few days ago on Facebook, and, and um, never do that because you start arguments, but he did that anyway. He said, here was his question, he said, in your opinion, what was the zenith of American history? What, you know, what was the high point of American history? And of course, you know how people could disagree about that, or, or the word was is kind of foreboding because that means it's in the past, I guess, but and I don't know what you'd say to that question. People had different answers for it. But if you ask me what is the absolute high point in the history of Israel, it was in Second Chronicles chapter 6. You can turn there with me if you like. I'm not going to read it, but we're going to refer to it a lot. It took place in Second Chronicles chapter 6. And this is the account of the dedication of that first Jerusalem temple. Uh, remember how much fun the mortgage burning was last Sunday night? Those of you who went to it, that was, that was a high point in the history of First Lines Church. Okay, we've had several. That was a high point in the history of our church, and it was a celebration. But you know what? That was about one zillionth as special as what happened in Israel this day. The temple had finally been completed. The priests were all in attendance, and they were ready to offer their sacrifices. The musicians were all there. They were ready to play their instruments, and the singers were ready to sing. And the people of the, of the nation were getting ready to start singing and praising God. Everyone's all set. And Solomon, King Solomon, he walks over to the altar of the Lord. And he stands on a big platform where all the people of Israel can see him. And then he falls to his knees. And he prays. And the first thing he says is he admits that he knows that no building can hold God. But then he asked that God would set his name on this very place in a unique way so it would be the place where the people of Israel would encounter God in all of his love, in all of his holiness, and not just Israel either. Solomon prays some things like this, and you can see it as you, as you kind of walk through 2 Chronicles 6. He says, when your people, God, when your people sin and they need to repent, may this be the place where they turn to find forgiveness. When a man breaks an oath, May you hear from this place and hold that man accountable. When your people are being defeated by their enemies or when there's a famine or when there's a disease or a plague or when your people are even taken into captivity somewhere, when the people turn to this place and they offer themselves back to you, answer their prayer for help. In fact, even if a foreigner, someone who doesn't even know your name, even if that person turns toward this place here and asks you for help, Please hear his prayer and help him so that he might know and so that all the nations of the earth might know who you are, God, and so they might learn to walk in your ways. And after Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven, consuming all the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord came down into the temple in a cloud and messed up the whole service. The priests couldn't perform their rituals. The singers couldn't see their music. The electric guitars all short-circuited. The sound system went down in this power surge that came from heaven. Wouldn't that be cool if that happened one Sunday? <laughs> see, King Solomon understood what the temple was. 
Yes, it was a place for sacrifice. It was a place for holidays and community gatherings and and ritual celebrations, but it was so much more. The temple was really the place where human need met God's provision. It was the place where human brokenness met God's love. It was the place where human sin met God's holiness, but also his forgiveness. That's why Jesus got so angry that day when he he grabbed that whip and he drove all the money changers out of the temple courts because they had taken over what was called the court of the Gentiles, the court of the nations, the place where the people from all the world could come and hope to experience something of the presence of the God of Israel. And Jesus said, my, my father's house is supposed to be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've turned it into a shopping mall. The Bible says that Jesus loved the temple with a consuming zeal. But he was about to change everything about it. Okay. Let me bring you into the story now and invite you into it. Okay? Because we put the part of the puzzle together here. In particular, I want to invite you to join the disciples, your brothers, fellow believers, the disciples of Jesus, as they stand on the Mount of Olives and as they overlook Jerusalem with Jesus in Acts chapter 1, because when this happens, they're standing on the Mount of Olives. And I want to show you what the view looks like from this very place. This is not what it looked like in their time. This is what it looks like today. If you look down from the Mount of Olives, this is what you will see. Uh, that, that big golden dome over on the right is the Dome of the Rock, part of the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound, which is the third holiest site in all the Muslim world. In fact, there's been a lot of strife in that very place over the last couple of weeks. But you can see that that dome is really sitting on part of a much older structure, which is the Temple Mount. And as Jesus and his disciples and as you look down from the Mount of Olives back in Jesus' time, what you're looking at here is actually the beautiful Jewish temple, the place where God and man come together to meet, and the geographical center of the kingdom of God on earth. That's what you're looking at. And there's a prophecy in Isaiah, and it's actually repeated in Micah, that says that one day all the nations of the world will come to worship the God of Israel. And they'll come to Jerusalem to learn to walk in God's ways. And it says that they will stream, that's the verb it uses, stream to this place like a river being drawn uphill on that mountain to worship and to meet with the one true God. And the disciples are probably thinking of that that prophecy and they say to Jesus, now that you've risen from the dead, Now that you've defeated death, now that pretty much everybody here knows that you're definitely the king of Israel, is now the time for that to happen? Is now the time for the nations to come? Is it time for you at this time to restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus says, not yet. But since you asked a kingdom question, let me give you a kingdom answer paraphrasing Jesus here. He says, the nations aren't going to be streaming here, but you're going to go to the nations, and you're going to tell them about me. And as you go out into this world, you are the people of the kingdom. You are now the people of the kingdom, and you are taking the kingdom of God with you, because wherever you go and live a kingdom life, the kingdom is going to be expressing itself through you disciples 
and First Alliance Church people. And you also need to carry the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. As it says in Luke 24, 47, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in my name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. In other words, that all people everywhere can now be forgiven for sinning against my Father. Because I came to earth, Jesus says, and I lived the life they should have lived, and I died the death that they should have died. You are now to proclaim freedom for all of Satan's captives everywhere on earth because there is now no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus. Oh, and you may be wondering about that building you're looking at down there, that, that pretty temple. Remember what I told you last Tuesday night because Jesus and his disciples had, had been right on that spot in the Mount of Olives. Actually, it was a few weeks before this. Last time we were standing up here on the Mount of Olives staring down at that temple and you told me how magnificent and beautiful that building looked and what I said to you was that within 40 years not one stone will be left on another. You know what? That's still going to happen. But that's okay. I know you can't imagine a kingdom without a temple but guess what? Disciples, First Alliance. You're about to become the temple. Because you can't bring my kingdom to the nations unless the Holy Spirit first comes upon you and lives inside you. And that's about to happen. The same mighty wind that blew into Solomon's temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 6 is about to blow into you guys in about a week and a half. You will be the temple of God's Holy Spirit, which means you need to be cleansed of sin and filled with my righteousness. It means you're going to receive a power for living and helping others that you've never known before. And it means that, that you, my disciples, you First Alliance Church, are now the place where people go to meet God. Your life is now a place where human need can intersect with God's provision. A place where people that are racked by sin and guilt can hear the message of God's forgiveness because you're going to tell it to them. A place where outsiders, immigrants, refugees, friendless outcasts can come learn about God's acceptance because you're going to show it to them. A place where orphans can experience God's love. A place where the sick and afflicted can experience God's healing. A place where people who don't know how to pray can come and learn how to come to God the Father in Jesus' name and covered by his blood because you can guide them in there. Who are the people in your life, in your neighborhood, in your place of work, in your school, your place of recreation, people that need to come to a temple? They need to meet God. Well, they have to come to you. You're the meeting place. You can't go to a physical temple anymore. Look, there's a mosque on that spot. It's got to be the church, not meaning the building, but meaning the people, including you. In Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul tells us that the church is being built into a temple made not out of stones but out of people in which God lives by His Spirit. Today is actually Pentecost Sunday, so there's not a better day to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to take the indwelling Christ out into the world and be His witnesses because the kingdom of God has gone mobile. And so is the temple. 
Let's pray together as a church. Lord, there is no more temple right now on that temple mount. There is no building where people come to meet you. There is your church. There is your people. And Lord, here we are, gathered together right now, but over the next seven days, we're going to be scattered throughout this county and even farther. And we are a place where those who need forgiveness, those who need healing, those who need peace, those who need hope, can come and experience not just our compassion and our help, but something even deeper. They can experience the compassion of Jesus and the help of Jesus and even the forgiveness of Jesus as we bring the gospel to them and share the good news of what you have done. Lord, we don't build your kingdom. You build your kingdom. But we advance your kingdom as we move out into the world and become points of contact for lost people. And Lord, we also realize that we need to be empowered in order to do this. Those disciples had to stay in Jerusalem until they got the filling of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we ask that like you did in 2 Chronicles 6, and for that matter in Acts chapter 2, that you would come into us at First Alliance Church and that we would all be controlled by, filled with your Holy Spirit, empowered by your Holy Spirit, because we, don't, we can't do this on our own. We know, Lord, that that means we need to get rid of some stuff that's in the way. But Lord, we pray that you would empower us and that you would guide us and that you would reveal to us where we need to go, who we need to talk to, when we need to speak, when we need to pray, so that this kingdom of yours, this kingdom of love, can be established more and more in the places where we live and work and play and go to school. So God, thank you for bringing us into the flow of your redemptive history. Thank you for including us in your plan that one day all the nations will stream to you, but right now we're streaming to the nations. May we be faithful in the place where you've called us. In Jesus' name, amen.